I've entitled my message today, Flipping and Flopping, and uh, I got this idea as I was studying the text that a fish is really what I was thinking about through this message today, and so I'll bring that out as we go along today, but that's my title, Flipping and Flopping. Uh, I want you to think about this building that is outside of Washington, D.C. We call it the Building of Weights and Measurements. Now, take a good look at that. That's the best picture I could get of it. It's a little larger than the picture shows. But this is where we keep every standard of weight and measurement in the United States, and everything is brought to the standard of what this building says. They have the absolute, absolute accuracy of everything in that building. Whatever the measurement or whatever the weight is, it's always compared against the building of weights and standards. Now, let's suppose just for a minute that the building of weights and measurements uh, blew up. And the standard yardstick that is found there in that building by which we measure precisely 36 inches that make up a yard, if that happened and the yardstick was blown up, would our understanding of the yardstick be destroyed when that explosion occurred? Okay, let me just make that clear, okay, because I want you to think about this. If we lost the official and original yardstick, the standard for one yard at that building, could we not, by the existing copies that we have in our possession, could we not reconstruct the original yardstick within a zillionth of an inch? Could we not do that? Could we not take thousands of yardsticks and measure them that are copies of the original and measure them against that to have an accuracy of 36 inches within a zillionth of an inch. Now the reason I gave you that analogy is that the Bible as we have it today that you're holding in your hand does not contain the original manuscripts that were written by Paul and written by Peter and written by the prophets and the apostles. The Bible, however, that you're holding, has been copied thousands and thousands and thousands of times through the ages in many, and if in not most cases, by scribes and monks whose sole authority was to spend their life carefully and precisely copying the existing manuscripts to bring us to a 98.77% accuracy rate comparing the thousands of manuscripts. There is no other book in ancient history that comes close. Take the Gallic Wars that were written by Julius Caesar. The accuracy rate of the copies of Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars is 53%. The accuracy rate of the Bible, 98.77% accuracy rate. Take the Iliad and the Odyssey. Some of you have read the Iliad and Odyssey. If you've been in college, you had to read it. And... Uh, Take that one, written by Homer, a contemporary of Isaiah, 800 B.C. The accuracy rate of all the copies of the Iliad and Odyssey have a 37% accuracy rate. So what I'm saying to you is the Bible in its accuracy rate is untouched by any other ancient manuscript throughout history. Now, what you need to understand is this. We believe in the infallible, no errors, inspired original manuscripts. 
You say, well, if we don't have the original manuscripts and all we have are thousands upon thousands of thousands of copies that include some errors, why do we still speak of having an infallible Bible? It goes back to the analogy of the standard of the yardstick at the weights and measurement building. The science of reconstructing the original documents is one of the most exact and precise and impressive science we have in the field of biblical studies. We have been able to reconstruct the original biblical documents. Now, why am I telling you all this? Why even? I know, I know some of you aren't even interested in it, but I want you to hear it because I want you to understand how we got our Bible at some level. I'm telling you all this because the most difficult text in all of the New Testament in terms of trying to reconstruct the original Bible happens to be Mark chapter 16, verses 9 to 20. That's why in most of your Bibles you've got a little uh, parentheses around it or you've got a little footnote there from verse 9 to 20 that it is not found in some of the original manuscripts. Verses 9 to 20 is called through history the long ending of Mark. Some biblical scholars believe it should not be included in the book of Mark, and some biblical scholars believe it should be in the account of Mark. I believe, personally, it should be in the account of Mark. I believe a close associate of Mark or a early church father wrote the longer ending of Mark. I don't think Mark wrote it. I can go into lots of reasons, but I do think we should include it in our Bible today. I want to just give you four reasons why I include the longer ending of Mark. All right? Why do I believe it's inspired and authoritative for today? Number one, other authors of the Bible did not write their whole book. Moses, for example, could not have written his own death. He went up to the mountain and died. He could have been chunking away on that rock, writing his death while he died. He had to have, and even says he had, a scribe or an amuensis, and probably Joshua finished the book for him. Most likely, we say, they say it's Joshua. But there's a man who couldn't even have finished his own book. Number two, the long ending of Mark was never questioned by the church in the first and second century. That's powerful to know. It was never questioned in the first and second century, nor did the early church fathers in their writings question it. And it gradually became a part of Mark for everybody through the centuries. That's why every Bible has, one, has it today. Number three, maybe... While it was God's design in Mark to end at verse 8, Mark ended his book at verse 8, God also intended this long section to be added as a suitable conclusion to Mark uh, 16, verse 8. And I think the most powerful reason, number four, every verse after verse 8 is found in the three other Gospels that are recorded in Scripture. In other words, there's no new revelation of Scripture found, or there's no new revelation of Scripture added in the long ending of Mark. And I just want to show you this collage, what I call a collage or a patchwork collage, by God's design. Verse 9 is quoted in Luke 8, 1 to 3. Verse 10, John 20, 18. And you, I just keep bringing them all up, and I'm not going to go through them all, but you can see that every verse from verse 9 to 20 is quoted somewhere else in the Gospels. 
So to me, that would just argue that there is an authenticity to it being added and should be included. So I do think we should include it in our Bible, and I still want it in my Bible. Okay, that's, that's a brief explanation. I could go into external evidence, internal evidence, but I would bore you and you would not follow where I really want to go today. So I really want to get in the text and now I just want to preach. But I did want you to understand that. I feel like you should be informed about how the Bible came into being and why this passage is so argued over. All right, so in our text today, we are in the middle of a crisis. We're in the middle of a crisis there are three witnesses that come to the upper room and tell the disciples that Jesus is alive and they refuse to believe. Even the third witness is Jesus himself and he has to convince them that the hardness of their heart, they would not believe. Three separate instances that all say the same thing, okay? Verse 9 to 11, you have Mary Magdalene. She's the first one to see the risen Christ with the other two ladies because she is the most faithful to Jesus Christ in her life, and God gives her the privilege of being the first one to witness the resurrection of Jesus Christ. She runs to tell the disciples in the upper room, and the Bible said they don't believe her. They don't believe her, okay? Verse 12, then you have in verse 12 the two men. They're... After that, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the countryside. They went, reported to the others, and went to the upper room, and they did not believe them either. These two men on the road are the men on the road to Emmaus. The writer here is just shortening the story here. We know one of those guys was Cleopas, okay, or Cleopas, however you say it. And that is a seven-mile journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And on the way, Jesus came to them. These two guys, we don't even know these two guys till this place in Luke 24. They come to him, and the Bible says Jesus came in another form. You see that in the Bible there? He came in another, a different form. Now that form, the word form there, is the word in the Greek morphe, to morph. When a transformer morphs from a robot to a car, it is still the same transformer. All right, some of you can follow that illustration really easily, okay? If, whether he's a car or whether he's a robot, he's the same person. Roblox would be another one, okay? Roblox can go from a person to a block, all right? He can transform. He morphs into another form, but it's the same person. That's the word in the Greek, and that's why you hear that word around today, people morphing, all right? So the word in the Greek means... He went into a different outward appearance. He went from being the Jesus they would have recognized to the Jesus they didn't recognize because he changed into another form outwardly, but it was still him. And so they walked with him a couple hours on the road to Emmaus, and finally at the end of the road, when they get to Emmaus, they break bread, they have communion with Jesus, and their eyes are open, and they recognize it's the Lord Jesus Christ, and he disappears from their sight. And then they say to each other, did not our heart burn within us? We knew this guy talking with us was somebody else on that road. We just couldn't put it together, but now we put it together. And so the first thing they did is they ran across the countryside, seven-mile run, and they went, and they went to the upper room, and they reported it to the disciples, but they did not believe them either. 
Okay, and then finally you have verse 14, Jesus himself appeared to the 11. Now this is a long shot, and some of you haven't been hearing my series on Revelation on Wednesday, but let me just ask this. If you know this, say this out loud. What does the number 11 symbolize in Scripture? Okay, thank you for no one saying anything. I knew nobody was listening. Disorder, that's right. Number 11 means disorder, chaos, or confusion. I built my whole sermon around this. One word. The whole text is telling you they are in a state of confusion. They are in a state of, because they went from 12 disciples till Judas took his life, and they go to 11 disciples, and it symbolizes the confusion. This is very important, okay? And Jesus comes into the room, and the Bible says he, uh, what does it say? He reproached them. He rebuked them. For their hardness of heart, you see the word hardness of heart there? The word hardness is the word in the Greek, you know this word, sclerosis. That's the Greek word there for hardness. Sclerosis of the liver. If you ever get sclerosis of the liver, your liver will go double, three, four times its size and harden. I went to visit a man at the hospital one time. He was dying of sclerosis of the liver. He wanted me to lead him to the Lord before he died. He'd come to our church. And so I went, and he, his, he had a gown on, but he, his stomach was elevated. And he said, I want to show you what sclerosis of the liver does to you. He drank a lot. So he pulled up the top there, and there was his stomach two times the size of a basketball. He said, touch it. My first thought was, I don't want to touch it. But another thought was, I do want to touch it. It's a weird feeling. Okay, I want to touch it, but I don't want to touch it. And when I went to touch it, it was hard as a rock. There was no give of the skin. It just was like a rock. That's the word that Jesus was using. The hardness of your heart. You refuse to believe. You refuse to accept the facts as they were. God was trying to speak to you, but you hardened your heart against it. You got sclerosis of the heart. And you would not let the Word get into your life. You wouldn't let anybody get into your life. You wouldn't listen to anybody. So in our text today, they're in a faith crisis. Three times you've got this. They believe not. They believe not. They believe not. Their faith was in crisis. I really want to talk to you about this because I think this happens to many, if not all of you, when you get in a crisis. The last week of Jesus' life was the most difficult part for them to understand and have faith. He was talking about dying all the time. Why are you talking about dying? Don't talk about dying. They'd look at each other and say, what is he talking about? He's talking about dying. He said, if you destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up again. He said to them, if a grain of wheat fall into the ground and dies, it abideth alone. But if it dies, it'll bring forth much fruit. What is he talking about? That's the way they thought. They didn't get it. Why is he talking about death? Always talking about death. He's talking about dying. See, death wasn't in their plan. By the way, is death in your plan? Have you planned for your death? See, they didn't want to talk like that. They didn't want to think about death. I don't want to talk about it. That's what people do. I don't want to talk about it. They couldn't grasp that everything going on right now 
Everybody was against Jesus, and they couldn't figure that out. The Pharisees were against him. The Sadducees couldn't stand him. Rome wanted him dead. But really, deep down, they were thinking to themselves, I'm not worried. Jesus is a powerful man. I mean, he can walk on water. He can feed the 5,000. He can heal uh, the sick. He can open the eyes of the blind. He's got the power. That's what they're thinking. He's got the power. But when they seized Jesus, when they seized him in the garden, he opened not his mouth. He opened not his mouth. And he let them take him. They couldn't understand that. He spoke one time, and they all were knocked to the ground. But then he turned into a lamb-like individual. And they could not figure out why a man would be a lamb-like person. They drug him around like as a little boy. From judgment to judgment, they beat him like a slave until his skin was hanging off of him. They put him on a cross on his back, drug him outside the city, and they took him to the place of the skull. Nobody knew what to expect. And so they all ran away. They all ran away. Peter went to cussing. I don't know him. I never knew him. Push came to shove, and Jesus never fought back. He did no miracles. It was as if he lost his power. He willingly laid himself down on a wooden cross. He said, no man takes my life. I lay my own life down. And they nailed him. And the blood spewed out. The blood squirted out of him. And they hung him high and they stretched him wide. There, the Savior of the universe, stripped naked, powerless, impotent, delirious, murmuring. They didn't even understand what he was saying on the cross. He was on the cross. I thirst. Living water thirsts? John, take your mother home. What's that about? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, if God left, why should I stay? That's what they're thinking to themselves. What is going on here? Uncertainty and doubt grips them. What do we do? How do, how do I tell my wife that I've followed this guy for three and a half years and he's not who I thought he was? Well, what am I going to do? How, how, how am I going to put this together? I got to get another job. I gave three and a half years of my life up. I left everything I knew to follow him. I mean, if I ever needed a miracle, that was the time we needed a miracle. We didn't need to walk on water, but I needed to see something there. But they never saw it. How, how, how do I deal with this? How do I tell my wife that for three and a half years I followed him and now they're crucifying him as a criminal on a cross? They ran, that's what they did. They ran to the upper room and they hid like criminals. They heard the rumors. They heard that Judas had killed himself. They heard the rumors that someone took the body of Jesus and stole it out of the grave. I don't know. I don't know. How do they put it together? Where do I go? What do I say? What do I do? I don't even know what to think. The truth is, they're asking themselves, why did this happen? 
Or better yet, why did this happen to me? Why did this happen to me? If you ever have a faith crisis, that's how you'll talk. That's how you'll talk. Why did this happen to me? I thought God was on my side. Why did my mama die? Why did my daughter die? Why did my job get canceled? Maybe it's not real. Maybe it's not true. And skepticism has leaked into the room. And your faith is in a crisis. And here's what I want you to understand. This is why I want you to hear today. This is why I want you to hear this. This is so important. You think your life is in a crisis. You think your money is in a crisis. And you think your family is in a crisis. But that's not what the crisis is. That's what the devil is using. But that's not your crisis. I want you to understand that. It's what the devil is using. Your faith is in a crisis. It's always your faith that's in a crisis. Whatever you're facing, it is your faith that is in a crisis. That's why Jesus warned Peter about it. Satan hath desired to sift you like wheat. But Jesus said, I prayed for you that your faith fail you not. And when you are converted, and when you believe again in me, go encourage your brothers. Go encourage your brothers. What he's saying is this, is your faith is in a crisis. Let everything in your life fail, but not your faith. Let everything fail, but not your faith. If you lose everything, I'm telling you, lose everything, but not your faith. Not your faith. This confusion that we all experience eats at our faith. I know, I know this for a fact. Some of you in a crisis so bad, and you're saying things like this. Maybe he don't love me. Maybe he doesn't care. Maybe he's not going to rescue me. Maybe he doesn't see me. And what Satan has done is he's sifting you like wheat. He's shaking you to the core of who you are. It's not your money. It's not your family. It's not your friends. It's not any of those things. It's your faith. It's your faith he's after. Your faith is in a crisis. Now, the truth is, you can't sh encourage anyone when you're shaking in your faith. I mean, that's why I can't preach verse 15 to 20 yet, because they're still in a crisis. And in their crisis, they don't even want to go preach the gospel to every creature. Now, they will. They will because they'll come out of this crisis. But the truth of the matter is, you first have got to deal with your own crisis before you can ever help anybody else. <laughs> amazingly now, amazingly, under these circumstances, Jesus comes in the room and he shows himself to them. He didn't come into the room because they were strong and had a lot of faith. He didn't come into the room because they were good people. He didn't come into the room because they were moral and holy. That's not why he came into the room. He comes into the room because he's merciful. 
And that's why He'll come into your room. He's merciful. There's nothing you're going to do to make it happen for you. They knew they needed Him to come. God would show up for you because you're important to Him. I love this. Even when you're fearful, even when you doubt, even when you're uncertain, even when you get weak in your faith, even when you're being shook to the core of who you are, He will come to you. Not on the basis of you earned it, not on the basis of what you've done, not on the basis of anything else. I mean, you can be doubting. You can be uncertain. And He will come back to you. He will come back to you when you don't believe Him. I mean, you go back and forth in your walk, you're up and down, you're all over the place, but He will come back to you in your doubting. It's, it's hard to really get a hold of this. Now, now the truth is, maybe they weren't unbelievers. And the reason I don't think they were unbelievers at this point is because they still came and gathered in the upper room. They were struggling in their faith more than the fact that they had lost their faith. They didn't lose their faith. They're just struggling in it. Now, here's what Thomas did. Thomas put it all to words. This is what some people do when they doubt. They, he doubted with his mouth. But his actions of being in the upper room tells me that he was still seeking the truth. I love that. He's saying things outwardly. I don't think God cares. I don't, unless I thrust my hands, unless I touch his body, I'm not going to believe. God's checked out on me. I'm checking out on him. But he's still in the upper room. There's 11 in disorder, in confusion. And they're gathered there. Thomas doubted. But he was coming to the truth. They were doubting. The pastor was alive, but they all came to church. I love it. I love it. They had these doubts that the pastor was alive, but they all came to church that Sunday, all right? That's how you want to see this text. It's so beautiful. You're here because there's something inside, even though you doubt and you're uncertain and you are up and down and all over the place. You're here. You're here. There's something to this. You know it's real. It's what keeps you coming. And it's underneath everything that you're struggling with. And so, I know I'm talking to someone here. You've been saying a lot of stuff on the outside, like Thomas. But on the inside, you can't make sense. Saying all kinds of things you shouldn't be saying on the outside, but you're saying them. You're angry, you're hurt, you're upset, you're confused. You're uncertain, and you're saying things you shouldn't say, but you're saying them. Because it doesn't make sense down here. And because it doesn't make sense down here, you want to put it to your words. Just like Thomas. What you don't see, and this is what I want to try to explain to you, is God's got a hook in your mouth. <laughs> I don't know why I thought of this analogy, but I thought about it all week. God's got a hook in your mouth. He's drawn you toward him like a fish. You know any fish that like hooks in their mouth? I don't know one. You know what a hook does when it gets in the mouth? That fish will flip and flop and flip and flop and flip and flop. And that's what you do in your Christian life. You get a little hook in your mouth. You're stuck. 
And you're getting drug in and you're thinking to yourself, hey, get the hook out of my mouth. How do I get the hook out of my mouth? And God's all along drawing you to himself. He's got a hook in your mouth. And all you can think about is how do I get the hook out? But God's trying to draw you to himself. God's pulling in the line because you matter to him. You matter. You're flipping and flopping, pull out the hook, pull out the hook, man. I've got enough hooks in me, but God's drawing you to himself. That's what he wants you to know. That's what he wants you to know. That's, that's what I thought about this week, just, just what that fish must feel like when he doesn't understand what's happening. Of course, he's going to get eaten, right? But, but in this case, God's up to something. Now, I must confess here, I must confess, as I've thought about this message, my faith goes into crisis when my world goes into trauma. Because trauma makes you uncertain. It, it, it builds indecision in you. You're afraid and you doubt God. But here's what I wanted to say to you today. In your pain, he's coming to you. In your doubt, he's coming to you. He may rebuke you for your hardness, for your sclerosis. He may rebuke you for that and tell you, why are you so hard-hearted? Why are you saying the things you're saying? Why are you acting like you're acting? He may rebuke you, okay? That's what he will do if he's going to come to you. The first thing he will do is he will rebuke you. But he comes to you while you're unbelieving. He comes to you while you're unbelieving. He comes when your faith is in a crisis. I got to thinking about this. Show me the time when you almost quit. Show me where you almost died. Show me where your knees buckled. Show me where your faith got tired, where you laid over your son in the casket. You ever seen a man lay over his son? That's when God comes to you. And when he gets that close to you, you can see his wounds because he's touched with the feelings of your infirmities. He's touched. Jesus would walk through a door to get to you. You who doubted the most you who have a bad attitude, you who are disrespectful. He's coming to you. He's coming to you. You may act bitter because your faith is in a crisis, but he comes. He comes. It's probably one of the most beautiful ways to end the book of Mark. He just comes to you when you don't believe. Now, the Bible says this. He said it to Thomas. Blessed are those who have not seen and believe. They're more blessed. I must admit, I've never seen Jesus come through a door. I've never been able to thrust my hand in his side. I've never seen the crown of thorns on his head. I've not seen it, but I believe it. I believe it as do many of you, as do many of you. 
I believe there is a God who loves us. He walks through every age and stage of your life. I believe He stands in that hospital room with you, with me, when our, our aged parents die. He will walk us to the graveside. I believe that. I've been there. And He will make a way for them to come home. I can't prove it, but if I could prove it, then I wouldn't be eligible because it wouldn't be a faith. So I don't want to prove it to you. I just know it's true on the basis of faith that every tear that falls from your eye is in his hands. That weeping does endure for the night, but joy does come in the morning. I believe it. I believe it. That's it. That's all I got to say. Trying to think of something great to say. I had nothing there left, okay? Let's pray. Let's pray. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I want to talk to every one of you on a personal level in your life. And here's my thought to you today, okay? Do you need Jesus to come to you? Do you need Jesus to come to you? Has Satan desired to sift you as wheat? Sift you as wheat, to shake you to the core. I want you to know something right now as this child. He prays for you that your faith will not fail. That your faith will not fail. So let's get down, get this down in you, okay? I want you to know he came back for the disciples and he'll come back for you. He'll come back for you. You've said words you don't even believe and you said them. You're cynical. You're doubtful. Some of you are even bitter over some things. So here's what I want you to do. This is an altar call. This is for those who want to come to the altar today. I want you to say two things at this altar call. Now, we, we have counselors that will be over here on the sides. If you want to talk with a counselor or pray with a counselor, they'll be there. But if you just want to come to the altar alone, here's the two things I want you to pray if the Lord is speaking to you through His Spirit. Number one, say this. Jesus, knock down every wall I've built up and touch my heart and break them down. Break them down. That's number one. Okay, I'll repeat it again. If you're going to come, this is what I want you to pray. <sighs> Knock down every wall I've built up and touch my heart and break them down. And number two, number two, just say, thank you, God for coming back for me. For me. Not for the disciples. For me. The Spirit of God has spoken to you today and you sense that. And you have a spirit of thankfulness in you that says, thank you, God, for coming back for me. You came back for me. You did not leave me out of this. You came back for me. That's, that's the two things. 
I want you to say this morning. All right? We're going to have the praise team sing, and I'm going to invite you to come. So I want everybody to stand right where you are. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Just for a moment, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have the invitation. And if you're being spoken to by the Spirit of God, you come, you bring that before. Father, I thank you for your word. I know when I experience trauma in my world, man, I spin. I couldn't help but think today, you came back for me. You did not leave me. I'm so grateful. And I feel it again in my spirit today. And for those who come today, Father, I want to pray a special blessing over that you'd put your spirit and your power over them they'd have that within them as they've been encouraged and spoken to today. Lord, I commit that now. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you come as the Spirit speaks and let the praise team sing.